And we're going to turn to John chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, then get that open. That would be fab. And this is our last um, sermon in John's Gospel for a little while. Um, This is the end of the first half of John's Gospel. This is the last kind of chunk before John's Gospel takes a very different turn. We're going to read from verse 37, but I'd love us to have those words ringing in our ears. Show us Christ. Lord, show us Christ. That this afternoon we'd engage. There's so many things that would distract us this afternoon. There's the wet rain. There's dripping. There's dampness. There's kind of distractions. There's all sorts of things going on in our heads. This afternoon, let's ask that God would help us to see Christ. Not to be distracted by so many other things. So here we are at the very end of John's, the first half of John's gospel. How does he end? Let's read from verse 37 through to the end of John 12. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. I said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Okay, do you think that the ministry of Jesus was a success? I wonder instinctively this afternoon, would you say, yeah, I think Jesus was successful in his earthly ministry. As a preacher, do you think Jesus was a successful preacher? How would you rank him in his kind of, his success stakes? It's a big question, right? And it's a crucial question that John wants us to grapple with this afternoon. Did Jesus' teaching and his signs, all that he's done, these seven signs that we've been going on and on about, and the tons and tons of stuff that he said, all his signs and all his words, did it achieve anything? Look what verse 37 says. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. 
Can I say, that is a pretty devastating verse, right? If the sum total of your public ministry, and this is the end, Jesus does not say anything else to the crowds. From now on in John's gospel, it's just his 12 disciples. Jesus' public ministry ends with this. So was he a success? The unbelief of the people raises serious question marks over the claims of Jesus, right? Here's Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel. He claims all of this stuff and yet when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. When he came to the nation of Israel, they refused him. They didn't believe in him. So if he was so widely rejected by the Jewish leaders of his day, how can his claims be taken seriously? Did Jesus fail? I think this is why John takes this moment to put this in. Because unbelief places a question mark over the ministry and the identity of Jesus. We've got to grapple with that. Of course, it depends on your definition of success. You see, we often fall into the trap of measuring success and defining success purely on the basis of popularity. Success equals popular, right? Success is about numbers, whether that's followers or profit margins or whatever it is. Success is about numbers. So a successful band is a popular band. Right, here, okay. Have you heard of the band Tempe Mix-Up? Anyone here heard of the band Tempe Mix-Up? Of course you haven't. That was the band my brother was in when he was at secondary school. Tempe Mix-Up. They grew up a little bit, then they changed their name to Clutch Control when they were all learning to drive. Which was a better name, but didn't help the, the music. You see, here's the deal, right? We think, pop, we think success is about, are they a successful band? No. Successful bands have massive album sales and sell out stadiums, right? A successful politician gets elected to office, gets elected to office and rides high in the opinion polls. That's successful. If you, don't, if you lose the election, you're not a success by many popular um, ideas of success. What about a successful church? What does a successful church look like? It's big, right? That's how we instinctively think. A church that's successful is big, it's slick, it's got flashy music, it's, it's impressive. And we think that a small little church is dwindling, oh, it's struggling, you know, it's a struggling church, a successful church. You see, we can be lulled into this idea of measuring success in terms of numbers, particularly in London. And so unbelief is a big issue for us to deal with when we come to ministry of Jesus because by all measures of popularity, Jesus was not a success. Profoundly so. He didn't have a mega church. 
He didn't have a huge author's contract. He didn't have much of a following at all, in fact. Why? What are we supposed to do with the unbelief that surrounded Jesus' earthly ministry? What are we supposed to make of the fact that many people who saw the signs with their own eyes would not believe in him? And what about in London, where the message of Jesus is so often met with unbelief? Jesus in London does not seem to be winning many popularity contests, right? He's not that popular. Well, as Jesus' public ministry comes to an end, John is going to help us understand a little bit more about unbelief. And it will help us to understand and to redefine success and perhaps to get our understanding and our thinking straight about what's happening when people refuse to believe in him. So let's dig into this. Let's see what John shows us about unbelief. We're going to see three things about unbelief. Here's the first thing. Unbelief reveals the stubbornness of the human heart. This is not a particularly upbeat, happy, happy sermon. Uh, um, there's, there's some good stuff coming, but we've got to face up to reality. <laughs> you can hear it in verse 37. Even after they performed so many signs, they still would not believe in him. They would not. Do you hear that? That is a defiant resistance, a stubborn refusal. Notice there is not a shortage of evidence. That's not the problem. There have been so many signs that he's done. No, there is a different thing going on. I guess it's like someone who has decided that the moon is made of cheese. I don't know what was going on in my mind at this point in my preparation, but there we go. So here's someone who's decided the moon is made of cheese, and they're absolutely convinced. And it does not matter how much moon rock you bring back and go, look, eat this. Does it taste nice? It doesn't matter how much evidence you provide. They will not believe Because unbelief goes beyond an issue of simple evidence. You've got to understand this. John wants you to see this. Evidence is not the issue here. There's something deeper going on. And you find yourself wasting your time in trying to convince them otherwise. But come on, we've all all seen this, right? People who believe things and they will not change their views, even when confronted with overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And normally what happens is the moon is made of cheese brigade hang out with other people who also believe the moon is made of cheese, right? That's who they hang out with. And then they go on Twitter and they find that there's a whole community of people who believe the world is made of cheese. This is what's called confirmation bias. You begin to read the stuff that confirms what you believe. 
And the more and more you believe this stuff, more and more you stubbornly refuse to accept evidence that is placed before you. In 2017, there was a book that was written, which I haven't read, but I like the title. Um, And I might read it sometime. The book is called Denying to the Grave. Why we ignore the facts that will save us. And it's, a whole, it's not a Christian book, it's a whole psychology around why human beings do this. Why do human beings end up believing things despite the evidence to the contrary that actually turn to be, out to be harmful for them? Why we ignore the facts that will save us. Now, of course, at this point, some people might say, no, hang on a second, you Christian, you preacher person. You're the deluded one. You see, what if we're the deluded ones, right? We're the moon is made of cheese people. Are we all following this? I hope this moon is made of cheese thing doesn't get too distracting. What if we're the moon is made of cheese people, that we are in this echo chamber, that we're just, you're all here and I'm telling you stuff and you're going, oh yes, you see, that's true. And now it's true and all those people out there, they're wrong. Let's try and be fair. We might be that, right? We've got to be honest enough to say, let's, let's think carefully about this. So many would say today, no, Christians are the ones who are, believe fairy stories that science has now disproved. But John says in his gospel, that's not the story of unbelief. No, the problem, look at it again. They have had many signs. The evidence is all there. The evidence, the signs, the facts, they're all on the side of Jesus in this story. It isn't that there's a ton of evidence to prove that Jesus isn't who he said he was, but they're believing it anyway. It's, there's a ton of evidence to prove that Jesus is who he said he is, and they're refusing to believe it. You see, it's that way round. And interestingly, in John's gospel, if you just go back one page to chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests, these leaders, they've already had a meeting. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Do you see it? They're not denying the facts. They're not, they're not saying the evidence isn't true. They're just refusing to accept the implications of the evidence. They're refusing to trust Jesus. There is a stubbornness that is defiantly resistant to God even in the face of the greatest evidence. And there is a long history of that in the Bible. We have to understand that deeply wired into the human heart is this stubborn resistance and refusal to accept evidence that is plainly before us for the identity of Jesus. And in order to help us to see that a little bit more uh, and to show us this is nothing new, John takes us back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to seek out some answers to this question of unbelief. See, John says this is a long-running problem that's affected God's people, this nation of Israel that God chose to be his special possession. 
They've always had this issue. God has performed many remarkable signs for his people. He spoke to them in many miraculous ways, right? So look, here we are. Does this sound familiar? Signs and words, right? Just like we've seen in John's gospel, signs and words. That's always what God's been doing. Signs, opening up the Red Sea, sending plagues, rescuing you out, giving them manna in the desert, water out of a rock. I mean, how many do you want? Sign after sign, and then words. God's given them words. He's spoken to them. He sent them prophets. He sent them words so that they could understand what he said. Signs and words over and over. And yet time and again, those signs are met with unbelief. Rather than trust God, they turn away from God. Rather than be loyal to God, they chase after other gods. It's repeated on page after page of the history of God's people. And so John says, why would you be surprised that it's happening again? Unbelief is the natural human response to God. This is the deal when it comes to God. And then he quotes in verse 38 from Isaiah, this quote, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's interesting because that quote comes at the start of a chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. It's a very famous chapter which is going to talk about the suffering of God's servant, this promised one who's going to come and is going to suffer. And it starts with those words. It's like, Who's going to understand this? Who's going to believe this message? You see, the trouble is, the way that God chooses to work is in a way that doesn't pander to our desire. You see, yes, God will give signs and words, but he won't give you what you want. He'll give you what you need. He doesn't give us what we crave. He gives us what we need in order to believe in him. But he doesn't give us what we demand. You see, often we want to make it like this, don't we? We say, okay, God, I'll believe in you as long as you do this for me. As long as you do this. As long as you do this. No, we don't get to set the terms of belief. God does. And so God will choose to reveal his glory in suffering and weakness. That is what God will choose to do. And humanity will stubbornly refuse and go, no, we don't want that. I don't like that. God, do something else. Isaiah 53 says that this one who's coming would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He would be despised and rejected by mankind. So, should we be unsettled by unbelief? No. Because unbelief has always been the human, stubborn, natural reaction to God. And so when Jesus is despised and rejected rather than winning the popularity contests. You say, this is the one. This is what Isaiah said. Lord, who's believed our message? To whom 
has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's going to understand this? Who is going to believe this? Such a remarkable thing through weakness. So when you see a world refusing to believe in God, or when you see in your own heart a, a resistance to God, that is the natural state of the human heart. But there's a second thing going on here. Not only does unbelief reveal the stubbornness of the human heart, also unbelief, and this is where it gets slightly more tricky, Unbelief reveals the limit of God's patience. Look at verse 39. There's more going on here than we need to see. It's not just that, you know, here's God and he's done these signs and words. His signs and words. Come on, people, believe in me. And he's going, oh, they don't believe. They don't believe. That's not what's going on. Look what verse 39 says, and you've got to feel the shock of this. For this reason, that is for their hardness of their hearts, for their refusal to believe. For this reason, they could not believe. Look at it. Verse 37, they would not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe. Do you see the difference? You see, we've got to understand that their unbelief, their persistent, stubborn, ongoing relief is met by God with a judgment that says, then I will Make it impossible for you to believe. And that's why this quote from Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see their eye with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. The natural stubbornness of humanity is met with this judgment of God that he says, then I will make you blind and I will make you deaf and I will make your heart hard and you will not believe. That's terrifying. Now this bit of Isaiah, this is also quoted in Isaiah, comes in Isaiah 6 where we started our service. When Isaiah first gets his job and God says, Isaiah, I want you to go and preach to the people. And he says, this is what's going to happen when you preach, Isaiah. As you preach, I'm going to harden their hearts. I'm going to blind their eyes. And I'm going to deafen their ears. No one's going to believe you. And so Isaiah goes to preach to the people. And guess what? No one believes in him. Isaiah's not a successful preacher, is he? Isaiah doesn't get voted to... uh, invited to any big conferences. Isaiah doesn't get flown around the world and put on stages. Oh, come, let's all go listen to Isaiah. No one wants to listen to Isaiah. No one believes him. They listen to Isaiah, they think he's an idiot. Shut up. They've got other prophets they like much more. Let's go listen to them. They say much nicer things. We don't like this Isaiah bloke. Let's go. You see how warped we are? And yet this was the point. 
God had given his people sign after sign after sign and word after word after word. God has been so patient and time and time again God's people had said no, had said no, had said no, had rejected and again and again God had given them another one and another one because God is patient and he's kind and he's more patient than I would ever be and yet there is a point at which his patience ends and his judgment falls. That is unbelief. Unbelief is the judgment of God on people who have refused to believe in him. There comes a point when the opportunity for belief is gone and God acts in judgment. That is what happened to Old Testament Israel in the days of Isaiah. It was too late. And Isaiah's ministry was to preach. As he preached, there was judgment and then exile would come. And now John says, that's what's going on here. Unbelief. You see, we've got to take this seriously. This is not talking about those moments when we have a little doubt, you know? When we go, oh, I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about a settled conviction, a a settled state of unbelief that says, no, I will not believe. God's response will be, then I will make it so you cannot believe. You see that? Because ultimately God's judgment comes. He is patient with you, patient with you, patient with you. But then his patience ends. So I want to say to you this afternoon that this should help make us take unbelief seriously. God is at work. So should we be surprised that Jesus' ministry ended unbelief? No, it's always been the way of the human heart. And no, because this is the judgment of God coming. And the third thing about unbelief. Unbelief reveals what we most highly treasure. Look at verse 42. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Oh, good. (laughs) That sounds good. There are some who believe in him. Ah, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. See, even those who might be interested, actually their hearts loved human praise, not the praise that comes from God. And when you see someone acting in unbelief, when you see someone who is refusing to own Jesus and acknowledge Jesus, then you discover what they most highly treasure. Actually, what I most highly treasure is that people think well of me. What I most highly treasure is that people like me. And so unbelief reveals what we most highly treasure. But I want to move on, okay? This is, oh, there's so much more that could be said, but we, I want to move on because I want to finish on a... On a High note. (laughs) Because I skipped over a verse. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said all this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Okay, look, 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 come on. Most of you aren't preachers, all right? But I'm just trying to imagine that you are. 
I want you to imagine your job was to be a preacher and to every day you stand up and people would reject you. Every day. Shut up. I don't want to listen. Not interested. Don't believe you. Be quiet. You're not a true prophet. Over and over again. What do you think sustained Isaiah? How did Isaiah keep going? How did Isaiah keep preaching? Well, because he'd seen the glory of God. Because he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. (laughs) Love it when that happens. He'd seen the glory of God, right? And the glory of God was enough to sustain him for endless years of rejection. He'd seen the glory of God. That was all he needed. And so he would keep preaching. But do you know what Isaiah actually saw? John says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. You see, what Isaiah saw in the temple that day was a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is high and exalted. Jesus is the one who's seated on the throne, whose robe, whose edge of the robe fills the temple. Jesus is the one that they're crying holy, holy, holy about. Jesus is God. Almighty, all-powerful God who, yes, was despised and rejected when he became a man, but he is that glorious God. So let me ask you this question. Was he a success? Was this Jesus a success? Do you measure his, pop- Do you measure his success by his popularity, by how many votes he gets, by how many likes he gets on Twitter, by how many people come to his rallies? No, you measure his success by his true identity as the King of glory, as the Lord of majesty who's seated on the throne. And if you don't believe in him, it makes no difference to his glory. It doesn't matter. It matters for you. And it matters to him because he loves you, but it doesn't change his identity. It doesn't change his glory one little bit. And that's why this whole section ends with John taking us back to the words of Jesus. I love this. We've just had all this stuff about unbelief Unbelief, the stubbornness of the human heart, the judgment of God, the true loves of our hearts. Look what happens in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, he's back at that again. Despite the fact we've just been told they don't believe and we've been told the fact that God is hardening their hearts, Jesus still is saying to believe, come on, believe. And so you may be sitting there going, what if I can't believe? What if God's hardened my heart? He hasn't yet. Because you're here. And because today he's calling you. And Jesus is crying out to you, whoever believes in me. And as you believe in Jesus, you believe not just in Jesus, but you believe in the one who has sent Jesus. That is his Father. You see, the Father and the Son, we're back on that massive John theme again. Look at verse 45. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. When you look at Jesus, you see God the Father. He's so glorious. I've come into the world to be the light. It's like, this is like, you know, in the, in the musical, 
when all the different themes come together, all the different songs that, you know, do you hear the people sing, the, the uh, big flag waving, one day more, that bit, when all the different songs come together, all the themes come together for this final crescendo, here it is, it's, here's Jesus, believe in me, I am the Father of one, I am the light of the world, it's like all of the themes of John's gospel so far, all packed in here. You've got to believe. Believe because this is where life is to be found. Believe because of all the signs. Believe because of all the words. And believe because if you don't believe, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge but to save. But there is a judge. These are serious things. The words of Jesus lead to eternal life. Verse 49, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know his command leads to eternal life. This is it, right? This is, this is it. Is Jesus success? Yes, he absolutely is, because he's the Son of God. You can't get more successful than that. His signs and his words have been given so that you might believe. Don't be shaken by unbelief. Don't be shaken by when you see unbelief in the pages of the Bible. Don't be shaken when you say, well, hang on, why didn't Israel believe in Jesus back then? Why not? Why doesn't London believe in Jesus today? Why doesn't my family and my friends believe in Jesus? Could this not be true? John's given us this so that we might not be shaken by unbelief, but so that we might believe. He's so magnificent. Isaiah saw his glory. John, at the start of his gospel, says, we have seen his glory. And actually, as we read the pages of John, we can say, so have we. Can you see his glory? The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. And Lord, we confess Um, that we see unbelief in our hearts. We see a stubbornness, a resistance to you. Lord, thank you for your patience and your mercy with us. Thank you that you have softened our hearts. You have opened our eyes and you've opened our ears so that we might believe. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to be people of belief, people who trust Father, help us to be a church that is successful, not in terms of numbers and in terms of slickness of presentation and in terms of a brilliant venue and all that stuff. Help us to be successful in the sense that we believe in you, Jesus, that you're everything to us and that we trust you. Please, might that be the measure of our success because you're the Lord high and lifted up. Lord, please, let us see your glory and believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.